Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Um, today's um, reading is uh, Gospel according to Matthew, uh, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, and uh, verses 18 to 26. The call of Matthew. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I'll, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the full players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout the district. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. We give you thanks and praise for the gift of this day. We give you thanks for the sunshine pouring in. We pray that your spirit would pour in on us, warming our hearts, thawing our hearts, calling us into something new. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they'd be acceptable in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I saw a sign recently that said, live so that if your life was a book, Florida would ban it. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. <laughs> In case you haven't been following the news, there are some self-appointed censors who've been on a bit of a rampage, uh, removing books from schools that threaten a pretty narrow, uh, very white, vaguely, and I mean vaguely Christian understanding of the world. Folks who 
And folks who care about a more fulsome expression of an experience of humanity are rightly uh, concerned. And I admit that there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction in, on my part that wants to read the first part of our reading today uh, like this, uh, overlaying this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and the religious leaders of his time, overlaying this, our 21st century politics on this first century uh, conflict. You know, I want this to be ever-loving, progressive Jesus squashing the closed-minded conservatives, because in that case... Uh, it would turn out that I'm right, and Jesus agrees with me, and gosh, I like it when Jesus agrees with me. <laughs> That's how I know he's on the right track. Um, seriously, I, like he, desire, he desires mercy, not sacrifice, right? Which should be what any of us who bear his name are, are, are after, and uh, which is why it's just a little bit troubling that I have a harder time imagining that for people with whom I disagree. Right? If, what if Jesus wants to call, you know, lunatic Floridian conservatives? Like, do I have enough uh, mercy for that? Because frankly, Matthew the tax collector is not a, a good West Coast tree-hugging hippie. He's a, a sellout to the Roman occupiers. He's taken up with the enemy, probably because it's a good financial move. Uh, even if he gets rich at the expense of his neighbors. And the tax collectors in the first century were notoriously corrupt. Uh, they making most of their money by grifting uh, anyone who showed up at their tax booth, and anybody, everybody had to show up at their tax booth eventually. And they were doing it in the service of a pagan government that was actively hostile to Israel's God. Uh, Matthew was collecting money to support the, the gaudy, idol-worshipping war machine that is the Roman Empire. That's the Matthew that Jesus calls to be a frontline witness to his will and way in the world. And so it turns out I'm a little bit more like the Pharisees than I would like to admit, which I think is actually the point at which this story becomes quite beautiful and powerful. I think it's interesting that Matthew, the gospel writer, puts this story in a series of uh, healing stories, including the ones that make up the second half of our reading for today. And I think that tells us something about how he wants us to, to read this. As some of you will have heard me say before that I just, I just love the diversity of the healing stories in the gospel. Right? No, no two of them are the same. How Jesus heals a person takes that person with radical seriousness. He's not prescribing the same medicine for every sickness. You know, I used to know a guy who was convinced that Buckley's was the answer to anything that ailed him. Right? It, didn't, it didn't matter what was going on in his body. If he could take as much Buckley's as he could and go to bed. It tastes awful, but it works. <laughs> That's not Jesus' strategy, though. There is no one-size-fits-all cure for all the things that ail us, whether they're physical or uh, spiritual, emotional or material. The beauty of the gospel, the wonder of God's kingdom breaking in among us is not its paper doll uniformity, but it's, uh, it, it's wild and flourishing diversity. And the vision at the end of scripture is when Jesus gets his way is not of a single kind of purified uh, group of people huddled around their good deeds. It's of the nations. Every tribe and tongue and nation streaming into God's presence in all of their glory, into the presence of the one who can heal them and make them whole. The God who made us and loves us and will heal us and make us whole. That's the vision we live towards. And the thing that's so beautiful and challenging about it all 
is that the healing that God wants for us begins not in our best efforts to sort ourselves out, not in our strength, but exactly in our weakness. That's where God wants to meet us. Which makes me think that Frederick Beekner might be right when he says that as often as not, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not keen to have Jesus meet me in my worst stuff. I'd like him to notice my enlightened politics and my sound theology and my occasional successes and you know, the fact that my life, more or less, is, is trucking along. <laughs> and it's not that Jesus doesn't like the good stuff in our lives, it's just that he's interested in more. Right? He, he wants more for us than the best life that we can cobble together. In each of the healing stories for today, Jesus encounters people in the thick of their messes and their deepest needs. And the point is not to overlay their stories on ours. We are not them, and Jesus takes us too seriously to pretend otherwise. But the invitation is to let their stories become a doorway through which we might limp into a surprising wholeness. And we see three different means of healing. We see repentance, we see outrageous dependence, and we see holy boldness. First, the healing that comes from repentance, the total change in direction. This is a a healing of the heart. Again, I think it's fairly staggering that that Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, not when he said a sinner's prayer and got his life back on track according to the religious authorities and expectations of his day. Jesus calls him in the middle of his sin, while he's ripping off his neighbors and propping up the empire. I think that's really important. And more importantly, I think it's a call away from those things. Jesus is not baptizing bad behavior. Matthew's tax booth is empty now. He won't be going back to work tomorrow. Jesus loves us just the way we are and too much to leave us that way. But the point is that we won't experience the, the abundantly far more love and grace of God if we won't let him have the stuff that we'd rather have overlooked. Which can be hard for those of us who have been trained to know that we are what we make of ourselves and we get what we deserve and any more in life that we get, we have to earn. Or worse, that... God wants to love us, but we have to be different first. We have to be better first. Even if nobody ever explicitly told us these things, the world that most of us occupy most of the time would have us believe them. I think in our first healing story for today, Matthew and the Pharisees are confronted by the unsettling wonder of grace, that goodness that we can't earn. It throws into sharp relief the mess that Matthew has made of his life and the futility of the Pharisees' attempts to get to God by their own good behavior. And it opens up the door to repentance, a complete change in direction, a total reorientation in the world. I think Matthew the Evangelist is inviting uh, the church to know that in Jesus, God hasn't held anything back from us and wants the same in return. Right? Jesus, by calling Matthew from his tax booth, or by Jesus calling Matthew from his tax booth, rather, we are invited to know uh, that we can bring not only our best, but even our worst. That our relationship with God has not just to do with uh, our, our most impressive gifts and skills, but even with the most mangled and broken parts of us. I think this story invites us to say to Jesus here and now, Lord, have my whatever. Have my addiction. Have my doubt." Have my greed and my anger, have my 
failure as a parent or a spouse or a friend, have my uh, thoughts and feelings that if anyone knew, I know they wouldn't stay around, have my complacency, have my fear of being left alone that keeps me pretending like I have it all together, have my self-righteousness, have my loss and my heartache, have, have everything that I thought I couldn't bring to church. Meet me in that stuff, Jesus, because that's where I need you most. Meet me in my sickness and make me whole. Matthew invites us to find ourselves behind our own tax spoons, wherever they are, or whatever they are, and to know that Jesus is calling us out from behind them. Like, he knows about them, right? He knew Matthew was a tax collector. He knew what he was doing. And he called him. And I think, I think he's inviting us to know that we're more like the Pharisees than we care to admit, that we need repentance not only from the things that are obviously out of whack, but also from our own cramped self-righteousness and into the wide space of God's grace and mercy. Right? Our hearts are healed by letting Jesus lead us in a new way. And one way into that new way is through an outrageous dependence, which is what I think we see in the second story. In this father, in the second part of, our, of today's story, uh, we're invited to see God's power for us. Right? This is an outrageous request, right? Uh, my daughter has died. Come put your hand on her and she'll live. This is outrageous. Nobody in their right mind would ask for this. It's not like this happened more in the first century than it does now. And it's not that every outrageous thing we ask for will be given to us, and it's not that if we don't get something we ask, that Jesus loves us any less. But I, I do think that this Father invites us to be outrageous in our confidence in Jesus. Now, too often I know that I limit my expectations of God down to about the level of what I think I'm capable of. I suspect most of us do that. I don't know why you do it, but... I think, for me, it's mostly fear, right? If God actually can do more than we can ask or imagine, then I might have agency, but I'm not in control. And if I'm not in control, then that has implications for the way that I ought to be living my life, and that's unnerving. But I also think it's our best hope, right? A God who can't do more than we can ask or imagine isn't worth getting out of bed for. This Father invites us to trust in Jesus, that in Jesus we know the God of resurrection, the God of life unexpected. The, the one who overcomes the way things are for the sake of the way that they will be. We are not caught helplessly in, in a rushing current of an indifferent or hostile existence. We know the one whose spirit makes possible the impossible. In a world that often seems to be coming apart at the seams, don't we need to, to know that? Like in our lives, in, in this world, what do we need Jesus to do that is outrageous? And are we willing to ask for it, not from our strength, but from our desperation? Like, in other words, are we willing to risk getting our egos out of the way, letting our assumptions and expectations of what's possible go, and let Jesus do his thing in us and through us, and for us and for this God-beloved world? Are we willing to let him heal our fears and our doubts and our hurts for the sake of something outrageously good? Are we willing to take a, a risk uh, like this desperate father and allow for an outrageous dependence, inviting God to do something completely, that completely outstrips what we think we can do on our own, which is risky? Right? I think a lot, often I like my, 
my hurts and my doubts and my fears. Better the devil you know, right? Will we let Jesus soothe our desperation and raise something new? Or like the woman in the story, will will we let our deepest yearnings turn to holy boldness? Right? She's desperate. But I also think she's taking a page out of the Psalms and the Prophets. Right? Demanding the wholeness that she knows she's made for. Sometimes in the church, I think we're too passive in our approach to Jesus. This woman may be desperate, but she's not without agency. And she knows that she's the daughter of the Most High, and she's had enough of a life that suggests otherwise. Do we have the, the holy gall to grab hold of Jesus from behind? You know, it says he only touched her. I imagine she grabbed him. I mean, that's gutsy, right? She has the nerve to interrupt Jesus when he's on the way <laughs> to raise a dead girl. You can imagine that word has spread through the crowd, right? She knows he's on the way to do something spectacular. But she also knows who and who she is. And she wants to know the fullness of that reality. It's desperate, but it's also somehow holy and healing. She's heartened. Take heart. Your faith has made you well. Her deep need becomes her strength as it drives her to the one who can make her whole. Her yearning moves her to grab hold of the one who has grabbed hold of her, and she is healed. And again, these things are not stock images meant to show us what healing looks for everyone everywhere all the time. But what we see in all three of these stories, I think, is God's desire for for our wholeness, for healing, for new life in unexpected places, even in the midst of death. That's what God wants for this world. That's what God wants for us. And our healing may not look exactly like these or even like what we think we want, which can be its own kind of hurt. We've all prayed for something we didn't get, some healing we didn't get. And the Psalms give us voice to pray those prayers. We're allowed to pray those prayers of anger and hurt and disappointment. The whole book dedicated to it. And if the words don't work, we're promised the Holy Spirit will sigh with groans too deep for words on our behalf. It can be its own kind of hurt, but each of these stories, in their own way, I think invite us to know the one who knows us and loves us more deeply than we can imagine. And who comes to us so that we might have life and have it to the full. Matthew tells us these stories not so that we can compare them to ours, but so that we might have a clearer vision of Jesus, who he is and how he is for us, that we might come to trust his love for us all the more, knowing that he is the one who will meet us in that dark valley and lead us into a new possibility if we'll just hear his voice and grab hold. And I think that ultimately Matthew tells us this so that we might be beacons of that hope for others. This is about formation, not just information. Not just telling us about Jesus, but inviting us to life with Jesus, to doing the things that he does. Come, follow me. Are we, and as we're being made whole, we become agents of wholeness. As we repent of the ways that our lives are in conflict with the hope and peace and joy and love of God for this world, we begin to embody those things. As we spend time in prayer learning outrageous dependence on the one who has held nothing back from us, we become people learning to trust that God really is ready 
and able to do more in us than we can ask or imagine. Not just for us, but for this world. The more we know of him, the more we will find ourselves in the company of those who, like this woman, are filled with a holy boldness for healing in the world. And I, I want to I end here and make really clear that what I'm not saying, what I'm not saying, right? Our, our, our task is not to try to be Jesus for others, but to be people through whom Jesus will draw, him, uh, draw others to himself. Right? And there's a world of difference. We're not in the world for God, we're in God for the world. And my favorite part of this, I think, is that we don't have to have it all together to start. We don't have to have all the answers in order to invite someone in. We don't have to have the right words or have our ducks perfectly in a row to to share the hope that is ours. I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation between Matthew and his fellow tax collectors. (laughs) Right? And what was that like? I I think that must have been a hilarious conversation. (laughs) Like, so you... You quit your job, and who's coming for dinner? (laughs) Okay. And what a wonderful thing to know that the only people that Matthew had to introduce Jesus to was other sinners. And what a wonderful thing to know that he was glad to sit with them too. But a God who by the power at work within us is able to do abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. God be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church forever and ever.